This podcast is sponsored by Blinkist. You've heard me talk about Blinkist before. It's a subscription service that provides you 15-minute summaries, both audio and written, of thousands of popular nonfiction books and podcasts. And my recommendation is to use these summaries to quickly survey the big ideas and important new books and decide which of them you'll dedicate your limited time to actually buying. Now, I'm looking at Blinkist right now and seeing summaries for a really exciting collection of big swing idea books like James Sussman's Work or Matt Mason's The Pirate's Dilemma or Skip Gates' The Black Church. In just 45 minutes, I could have grokked the main ideas of all three of these big books. That's the power of Blinkist. So it's a new year. Why not let Blinkist help you launch a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable 2022? And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com deep to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash deep to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash deep. This podcast is sponsored by Monk Pack. I want to talk to you in particular about the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars, a great tasting snack that has only one gram of sugar and two to three grams of net carbs. Now, I eat these bars when I'm on a roll with my work and I don't want to interrupt the flow to go get a full meal. They fill me up. They have a great texture, not too hard, but still crunchy because of those seeds. And they have great flavors like my favorite, peanut butter dark chocolate. And they give you all of this while allowing you to avoid the sugary junk that is found in so many other snacks. So try it for yourself and you'll see. Here's the good news. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code DEEP at checkout. Monk Pack is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. So to get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M U N K. P-A-C-K.com and select any product and enter that code DEEP at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. I'm Cal Newport and this is Deep Questions, episode 163. I'm here in the Deep Work HQ with my producer, Jesse. This is the first show we are recording in the new year. So, Jesse, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And the, the new year means, as is our new tradition here on the podcast, it is time to go over my reading list. So, as longtime listeners know, my target is usually to read about five books per month. And we've started the habit of, at the beginning of each new month, reviewing the books I read during the past month. So now it is time to talk about the five books I read in December 2021. Are you ready for this, Jesse? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So the first book I completed in that month was How Star Wars Conquered the Universe by Chris Taylor. This is basically a George Lucas biography that has some pop culture reporting on the Star Wars phenomenon. Now, you might remember this, Jesse. This was controversial. We talked about this back in December when I was reading it. I asked the listeners, is it okay that I am skipping the chapters that are about the cultural reception of Star Wars? So early on, the book started going back and forth. It would be a chapter from the timeline of George Lucas's career, so biography. And then it would switch to a chapter that would be about, here's a group of guys that dress up like stormtroopers and who they are and what's that like. And and I was not so interested in the cultural stuff. I wanted the biography. This is part of my, my ongoing effort to, my movie effort. I'm reading book after book about various people in the movie industry for some weird reason. 
And so I, I asked the audience if it was okay if I skipped that. And Jesse, you gave me the thumbs up on that, I believe, if I'm remembering. Yeah, that was okay. That was okay. Well, so here's the thing. Um, I have more defense for my approach because he stopped, the, the author, Chris Taylor, stopped doing that switching before, I don't know, two-thirds of the way into the book. And so it became straight biography, really, for the end of it. So in the end, I probably only skipped, I don't know, 30% of the material. So I'm going to count that. Um, so as I mentioned, this is part of my random project to really dive into the the film industry. I just uh, this is maybe the fourth or fifth book I've read in a row that is on that topic. I'm not sure why this is interesting so much, but it really has been this fall. And I really wanted to, to learn about George Lucas having finished a biography of Steven Spielberg the month before, and uh, a few things I learned. One, Lucas was a really good director so in this scene there's this scene centered around usc where there was lucas and there was coppola and spielberg wasn't at usc but he was in their circle scorsese was in their circle uh, among some others brian de palma was in their circle so it's this big group of directors and they all knew each other in that circle lucas was considered a hot shot so he had this great animated student short that won a bunch of awards and, and put him on the map. Like, wow, Lucas is the guy that he's the auteur. He's the guy with the vision. And then he did the student version of THX, which also blew people away. So I think people didn't realize that about Lucas Coppola really was trying to get Lucas to direct apocalypse now, but Lucas was said he decided to do star Wars instead, basically. So he was considered like the artistic guy. So that's kind of interesting. Um, the other thing I found out about Lucas is like these other guys, timing is important. Him and Spielberg came up just as the movie industry was changing, just as they were leaving the studio system. So, you know, Coppola's first movie was Finnegan's Rainbow, which was a classic studio soundstage movie. Then he did The Godfather. So it was like right as they were transitioning away from the studio system and they invented this idea of the blockbuster where you could have a, a movie that appeal to all these different age groups and could be in 3000 theaters and make all this money. And, and so their timing was right. Um, they were talented and Lucas, even more so than Spielberg had a relentless go big ambition. So if he was going to do a movie, just like a student movie, he was going to do THX student movie. He was going to find a way to get access to an abandoned military base and push the, push the setting, push the technology. He was going to make a movie where you're going to say, wow, this is, this is a lot bigger than I thought someone with that budget could do. And that was the, the, the approach that made star Wars big. He was like, we're going to invent new technology for the special effects. It's going to be bigger than anyone's ever seen. Clearly James Cameron picked up that torch from Lucas uh, after the fact. So anyways, that's what I learned about Lucas is this guy was incredibly talented incredibly ambitious. He wanted to do everything bigger than anyone had ever done it before and really, really focused. Uh, also very rich. So I don't know if you know that, but yeah, he's, he's like a billionaire, isn't he? Yeah, he's a billionaire. Um, were you a Star Wars guy, Jesse? I've seen some of the movies, not all of them. Probably not as much as you are. Is Lucas and Spielberg friends? Yeah. Yeah, they were friends. Uh, they all knew each other. Um, and they were going back and forth. It's, it's hard to overestimate how much money they were making back then. They were going back and forth trading off who had the number one movie of all times. And they were trading this back and forth, you know, multiple times in a less than a decade. And it's, it's hard to overestimate just how phenomenally successful they were as filmmakers during the 1980s. I mean, it was, let's see, what was eat? Well, E.T. blew it away. So Jaws was number one. And then um, Lucas got it back with Star Wars. And then Spielberg beat Star Wars with E.T., right? So like they were just going back and forth. Uh, Jurassic Park, I believe, was number one for a while in the all-time box office list. And it's just incredible how successful those two guys were. Uh, Spielberg directed Raiders of the Lost Ark for Lucas. So that's Lucas produced it. It was his project and he asked Spielberg to direct it. So they, they, uh, yeah, they ran in the same circles. They knew each other pretty well. Um, both very rich. <laughs> All right. Enough about movies. Um, second book in praise of slow by Carl Honore. 
this is a, a, a book, I think this was from the early 2000s, about the, the rise of various slow movements. So starting with slow food in Italy in the 1980s, and then it moved from there, slow cities, slow parenting, slow work. Um, I read it because I, it was background for a New Yorker piece. So there's a New Yorker piece. My, my most recent one came out on January 4th. And I was introducing this idea of slow productivity. And I read that book, Carl's book is part of it. So I talk about it in the article. So, so that's why I read that. So long story short, uh, there was a slow work movement that said we should work less hours. And, and basically my argument in that article is going to a four hour, or four day work week, right? Um, as has been proposed recently by Mark Takano, Congressman Mark Takano, he, he uh, is proposing a bill to make a four day work week, the official federal standard here in the U S the Congressional Progressive Caucus has now endorsed it. That's a hundred Congress people now endorse it. And and so I talk about that in the article that there's this push to shorten the work week. And that when it comes to knowledge work, my argument is that's not going to solve the problem. That's not going to solve burnout. The problem that knowledge workers have is actually the volume of work that's on their plate. The number of things that's on their plate that they have to make progress on, commitment, tasks, projects that people have thrown at them, and that when that volume gets too large, it creates a feedback spiral that makes work incredibly stressful and it burns people out. And so we don't need longer weekends. We actually need lower work volumes, which is going to require rethinking how we do work. And, and that was what I called slow productivity. So I, uh, I introduced that, that concept in, in Carl's book. Carl's book helped me with that. Interestingly, Mark DeCano then tweeted about the article. It's what I've discovered, Jesse, writing for The New Yorker, is in a past life, if I would cite someone who was sort of well-known or write about them, it was, in my mind, it was, well, I'm just writing for this small audience and, and they don't care. Now they care. Now they see it. I mean, the, the people I write about see these things, um, so I have to be a little more careful. What's an example of a slow city? I don't, you know, it's... Uh, all this stuff was very like late nineties, early two thousands. So there's some slow cities in Italy, less cars, more walkable, more local businesses, you know, nearby. Actually, there is an example. There's a model slow city that's here in suburban Maryland. Tacoma Park. It should be. We're slow. I agree. I agree. Tacoma Park is slow. Um but we came by it honest. We're old. We've been around since the 1800s. But there's a planned city that's farther out in Gaithersburg, and I forgot what it's called. But uh, he go he tours it in this book, and it's supposedly you know they they built it to have a town center and everyone walks and what have you. But yeah, you're right. Tacoma Parks has it right. It's a great model where we walk from our house to the little coffee store a block away from our little offices here where we have our, our podcast recording studio and and you know when Jesse needs to get new gear, the hardware store is connected to the same building and he walks down there and uh, yeah, come apart. That's definitely slow living. All right, moving on uh, a novel. When the lion feeds by the late Wilbur Smith. Now I say the late because he died in December. That's why I read this book. It's his very first book. I like first books. And so I figured, Oh, here's a novelist I knew growing up in honor or, motivated by his death let's go back and read his uh very first book so a couple points about it i am a uh genre fiction fan especially the adventure and techno thriller genres as i grew up on those books i'm a pseudo connoisseur of those two different genres of fiction writing i really like them they're not for everyone but i really like them wilbur smith was very influential in the rise of the sort of modern genre male oriented adventure novel. So he, he sort of helped figure out the 20th century adventure novel that then influenced uh, subsequent writers in that genre, like Clive Cussler, for example. Uh, so when the lion feeds is about, uh, it follows a family. So it's part of a big trilogy, more than a trilogy. He wrote a whole series of books that followed a, a family generationally. So, you know, the, this is the very first book. So it focuses on Sean Courtney, who starts the book as a kid, and he's middle-aged at the end of this book. And then I think the next book goes through his adult years. And in the third book, he's on the periphery. He's an old man, and they start following his kids. So, you know, it, it's this intergenerational book series. 
It takes place in sort of British colonial Africa. Wilbur Smith wrote this book in the 1960s and sort of follows this guy. Um, he's on a farm, a cattle farm, and then uh, tragedy befalls. They, they, they go to war and, and uh, long story short, he ends up having to leave the farm and he starts over by wandering into this uh, mountainous veld where they're just starting to discover gold. And a whole big portion of this book is it's like economic adventure novel. Him and his partner just building up a gold mining fortune, like the nuts and bolts. We, we had to borrow money. We bought this land. We brought in this gear. And, and, and eventually that grows into Johannesburg. And then he loses all that fortune. And so as one does, he travels into the bush to ivory hunt for a couple of years. He says, I'll just, I'll ivory hunt elephants for a couple of years and, and use that to start my next fortune. And, and the book kind of ends after that. Um, good book trigger warning, right? This is written by a, uh, a guy, a British colonial white guy in the 1960s. who grew up in Africa. So it is not quite, it is not quite up to modern political sensibility. So <laughs> trigger warning, you can, you can kind of imagine you can kind of imagine it's not quite up to speed. If Edward Said read this book, his head would have exploded. And if you get that Edward Said reference, you should definitely not read this book because it's going to make you unhappy. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, this one was a, a galley. So a publisher sent it to me. I don't think it's out as of this recording. It's coming out later in January, 2022. Uh, it's a straight self-help book. I'm also a sucker for the straight self-help category. I mean, me and the people I know, we write in this sort of New Yorker style self-help where you kind of cite science and Aristotle and you kind of gussy it up. Malcolm Gladwell invented this genre, but this is just straight self-help. I like straight self-help. It just gets right to it. Like, here's the seven things. Do this. Here's the worksheet. Uh, and this book was called Hero on a Mission. It was written by Donald Miller. Uh, I appreciated the the grandiose ambition, like it's straight self-help on a really big thing. How do you make your life more meaningful? And I, I liked people taking big swings at these type of topics. I, I think there's real value in, even if you can't obviously capture all of the complexity of cultivating a deep life in, you know, one book, there is great value in trying to put some structure to it. I think it, it, it it's a, it helps. The thing I'll just say an aside I really liked about Donald Miller is he talks about in the book that him and his wife bought 15 acres of land outside of Nashville. And there it's, it was scrub forest land with a lot of invasive species. And they're slowly like cultivating this land. They're, they're selecting trees and getting rid of and replanting things. They have an orchard. They have a garden where they're, planting pear trees to form a, a they're working on them, shaping them to form a natural fence over the years. They're renovating the house and making it a place where they have events and retreats. And I don't know. I love that idea of having land with a name. I think this one's called goose Hill and spending a lot of time cultivating land. So I, I definitely got a lot of value out of that one. I don't know. Jesse, I, my wife will tell you, I have, I always, will have this dream of I should have land and just spend there and work with the trees. But also I'm terrible at all that and have very little patience for it. So I think it would actually be disastrous if I really did have land. But uh, for some reason, that's my, I don't know. It's my daydream. I'm not sure if you're a land guy. Well, you're getting closer from buying the desk. So that's coming from the land for your new HQ at your house. That's how I do it. Exactly right. So I have people who have land build me things off of the the trees they have on their land. Uh, yeah, that's that's good. That's my connection. It's a good first step. Yeah. I have a very small yard at my house. Jesse has seen it. I, I do not. I have a very small yard and I have a, a, a crew that takes care of it. So I should not have 15 acres of, of land. I think it would be somehow within six months, uh, it would be on fire, would be part of it. There would be somehow an oil spill. I'm not quite sure how that would happen. So it would be on fire. It would be like covered in noxious chemicals and um, would become a home for like invasive, invasive, aggressive killer wasps that would start terrorizing the town. I think all of that would happen in about six months. Well, somewhere there, hopefully you'd have a writing shed so that wouldn't get burned down. So you could just escape to there. And Yeah. Well, that that is my dream is I want a writing shed and I don't have room for a writing shed. Uh, and I... It is a dream of mine. So I need, 
I was having this conversation. And I, I, for, for real, I was having this conversation with two different people in the last month, writers who have a getaway plot. So it's kind of an interesting model. Uh, a place they go, it's not like a large cultivated land and it's not nice, it's quiet. And they have a place to write. So I have a, a writer I was talking to who lives right outside New York City in a town that's kind of like Tacoma Park and about 90 minutes up 87. He has some land. Uh, I guess that'd be like the Southern Catskills. And there's um, a little riding shed, you know? Uh, and then another guy, a uh, good friend of mine was telling me um, he lives in Chicago in the city in a row house. And they just bought a plot that is four or five acres near one of the, I don't know what the great lake is near there, but whatever that is, Lake Michigan, it's not on the water. It's one lot in from the water and it has like an old barn and then they're planting an orchard on it and they can get there in 90 minutes as well. Uh, and he's building, he was showing me these plans like a fireman forest fire watchtower, you know, like you would build, they used to build to look for forest fires. And at the top of this tower, so it's like an elevated gazebo. Um, and that's where he's going to do his deep work because you can see the lake. How's he get up there? Does he take an elevator or is he? It's going to be a ladder. Ladder? Yeah, that's it's a little ladder. Dangerous. Yeah. It's like icy up there. Well, you know, a little bit of danger gets, gets the heart going. So I'm excited about that. So I don't know. Maybe this is, I, I like this notion of, of having a getaway plot that it's not super hard to maintain. You don't need like a really big house. But the key to a getaway plot is I think it has to be non-trivially sub two hours away. If it's two hours or more, you can't go and write for a day and come back. Yeah, I see that. Two quick points. I there's no doubt in my mind that you'll find something like that. You talk. I've been listening to your stuff for a long time, and I think you'll find it eventually because you talk about it a lot. And then, secondly, in terms of self help books, I was listening to Ferris's podcast recently, and he quoted you on giving him a suggestion for the self help book that he read when he wasn't even going to read new books. So. That was kind of cool. I just listened to that recently. Yeah, that's a good book. So it's uh, Oliver Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks. Uh, I talked about it. I told Tim about it, and then and then Tim read it, and then Tim did the thing that I think every publisher wish wishes would happen. <laughs> says, Tim, I, I believe he – you listened to this. He released the first chapter, like the audio book version of the first chapter of Oliver's book on his podcast. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I just listened to it actually. Man, could you imagine – having like the first chapter of your book of your audio book on Ferris's podcast. Um, but that's so 4,000 weeks is a cool book. Uh, I read it a long time ago. So I blurbed it. So I, I read it, you know, back before it came out and uh, it's a great concept. It's called time management for mortals and 4,000 weeks is roughly how many weeks you live. And Oliver's whole point is you most things you're not going to get done. You have a very limited amount of time, all these wild dreams you have, most of them won't happen and be okay with that. And spend more time have, enjoying what you do have and what you can do, and, and don't be so aggressively goal oriented. It was that book hit, hit that book hit a nerve um, well before Ferris mentioned that that thing was mm-hmm. yeah that thing crushed it. It, it. I think it's one of the better selling in our world of like the people we know that write the sort of New Yorker style self help. He's a Guardian guy, a very smart guy. Um, I think that book is the one that really crushed it this year. It was a, you know, very happy for Oliver. I've, I've always loved this stuff and he's been very kind to my stuff. So circle goes around. All right. One more book. Uh, I finally read some Wendell Berry. So I don't know. Do you know, are you, uh, do you know any, he's not as well known as I thought you, have you heard of Wendell Berry? No. Cool guy. He's old now. He's in his eighties, but he went, grew up in Kentucky on a small farm, went to New York city, got, educated, I don't know, Columbia or NYU or something, got sort of overly educated, got a writing job in New York City. He wanted to be a writer and he was going to do the whole modern cosmopolitan writer thing where you're, you live in a city, you're not, you're not from somewhere, you're just observing things around the world, you know. And for whatever reason, he's like, I don't like this. I want to, I'm from Kentucky. I want to go back to Kentucky. I want Kentucky to be my muse. That's like, I want to be from a place and write about the place. I don't want to be just this abstraction writer that just is commenting on the world from a cosmopolitan detached place. It's like, I want to go back. So he moves back to Kentucky, gets a professorship at a small Kentucky college near where he grew up. Him and his wife buy, I think it's 12 acres, like a hobby farm. You know, he grew up farming. But it's not, this is not a production farm. 
And he's like, we're going to live on 12 acres. I'm going to be a professor and we're going to, I'm going to write about Kentucky. And then like another plot became available. Like, we should probably buy that. And then like another plot became available after that. We should probably buy that. And he ends up with like a real production farm, hundred plus acre farm. And this is why he's awesome. It's like, I'm not into this whole gasoline thing. I'm going to farm the way I learned to farm, which is teams of horses. And he's still, I mean, he doesn't farm. He's 80 now, but all throughout his career, he never went the tractors. <laughs> he farmed with horses. This guy's awesome. So he, he leaves New York to farm with horses, this farm in Kentucky, rural Kentucky, and is a novelist, a poet, but mainly an essayist. And he writes essays. He, he presages Bill McKibben, likes a very Bill McKibben style essays about the economy and the environment and a very influential writer and uh, writes it from this farm where he doesn't own a computer and you can't read. If you want to talk to him, you have to call the farmhouse and come out to the farm. He's like, awesome guy. Uh, and they just released the first sort of definitive essay collection where, where they pulled together. It's called the world ending fire. This came out in 2019 if you get the audio version, I think Nick Offerman, who I also love from Parks and Recreation, Ron Swanson, who, who by the way, is a guy who lives in L.A. as a working actor, but also has a giant woodworking wood shop in a light industrial warehouse in L.A. And like he spends a lot of time building canoes. He's he, like Ron Swanson. He does the intro or the prologue. So on the audio book, Nick Offerman reads it. Anyways, so I read my first collection, full collection of Wendell Berry essays. Are you going to take a field trip out there and check it out? I should, man. This guy's awesome. He has an essay in there that I might write a, a essay about for my newsletter that's called Why I Didn't Buy a Computer, which is cool. And I think this was the 80s when he wrote this essay. And he's like, look, here's my rules for technology. And it's very much like I wrote about in Deep Work where I go and I talk to a farmer, Forrest Pritchard, and say, like, farmers care. Farmers have like pretty strict criteria for why when they're going to spend money on a new tool. Otherwise, they'll go bankrupt. And we should have that same strict criteria when thinking about technology. We shouldn't just say, I don't know. Uh, I heard about TikTok. I should probably use it. Like we should have a farmer's mindset. That was my point in deep work. It'd be like, what's the value? What's the cost? Is there better ways to get that value? Uh, Wendell Berry wrote this essay about this in the 80s. I didn't know about this. Where he gave his whole list of like, here's how I decide whether or not to use a new technology. And the, and the computer doesn't, doesn't pass that test. And he published it in Harper's. Um, but what's cool about it is he got in trouble and they published the, like the, the whole thing is in the essay collection. So he, he wrote this essay. He's like, I don't need a computer and see if you can see the part here. We got in trouble. He's like, yeah, I, look, I write my things longhand and my wife types them up and you know, we're good. So that got him in a lot of trouble. And in the essay collection, they, they published the article, like the Harper's published a lot of these letters and they published the letters in the essay collection. So then a lot of people got mad about that and they say, oh, well, you have a great technology called wife and that's how you actually blah, blah, blah. So then he wrote an essay in response, right? This is like analog Twitter, yeah. like Twitter. But if like Twitter was in Harper's Magazine and there was like a week between every, you know, uh, so he writes this thing in response and he's like, basically, screw you. You don't know our family. You don't know what's like uh, how our marriage works or this or that and goes on this whole big, long, you know, whatever. And he's like, why are you all so defensive? I must have touched a nerve, like saying, I don't need a computer. And you're all so mad at me. Like you're all techno determinist apologist. Like it's really interesting, like this heated back and forth. Um, and then he entered, this was kind of interesting. He introduces this very grounded in farming idea of home economics, which is quite different than sort of what you would see in suburban DC where, you know, it's all, uh, salary job dual income government families he's like we we have a home economy It's a very farmer way of thinking about it and that and that we're we all are everyone in the family me and my wife we're all part of we have this farm we run and there's all these different things that have to happen and this fence has to get repaired and the milking has to happen and the horses have to be fed i, mean, I don't know how it works and we're all just working on everything as part of keeping this like you know very incorporated this household economy functioning which is a very sort of pre when you're not thinking about salaried work but like i'm producing from land it's the way you think it's like we 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 have endless things that have to happen that we're all working on and trying to keep collectively our farm running he thought of his article writing he just placed it in that same context he's like yeah like 
these articles that go out is sort of part of what keeps the household economy running. We're all just part of it. I do some writing. She does some editing. We do some whatever. Like, it's just like I, I, I put the staves on the fence and you whitewash them. And so it was really interesting to see this uh, clash that was happening. It's like a culture clash is that he was coming from a world where you like owned land and that was your source of income. It was very, you're a, I don't know what the right term is, but like yeoman farmer type thing. Like uh, I'm trying to make a living off of our family's trying to make a living off of our land. And we all work together to try to do it. He was coming from that mindset, but in the eighties, everything was shifting towards like most people weren't on farms. Most people weren't running their own small businesses in town where just the whole family works at it, the donut shop to keep it running. It was salaries and it was typically dual income salaries. And so this whole discussion about work and meaning and, and, uh, who's working and not working. Like all of that was just beginning. And this, uh, uh, why don't buy a computer came out, boom, right as that was happening. And you get to see in that frisian, like this is when this huge cultural shift was happening. So it, anyways, that was a cool part of the book is in this essays and the letters and the back and forth, you can see like these worlds colliding and in the collision, you actually got more insight than what any individual essay or letter was saying about. It was like a very dialectical thing. It was really cool. It was like in the collision of Barry with these letter writers in the 80s, you got more insight into the changing culture than you got from just reading any one individual essay about that period. So I just wanted to point that out. It was a pretty cool part of the book. You should send him a letter because earlier you were talking about how your friend saw you the mention on Twitter, but this way you only have... <laughs> You only get in touch with them. You send yeah. them a letter. That's literally how you get in touch with them. By the way, you, you no, I know. That's you how you should do it. That's how reporters do it. I mean, that's how this essay book came together. You have to send them a letter, yeah. and then like he may answer. I, he's very old now. Um, Probably doesn't get much mail. Yeah, I wonder what that's like. If you only they, do letters, you probably but, like getting mail. But it's the internet age. Does he get like a lot of? I'm sure he gets a lot of, you know, stuff from publicists, like books. Will you blurb this, like that type of stuff? But um, anyways, Barry is a cool guy. I'm going to read some more Barry. All right. Uh, so anyways, that's what, that's what I read in December, 2021. I'm deep into working on January, 2022 books, and we will check in at the end of this month with how my current reading is going. This podcast is sponsored by Headspace. This is a friendly reminder that anything that costs you your mental health is too expensive. This year, it's time to invest in yourself and finally relieve your ongoing stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness. Why not let Headspace help you achieve this goal? Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. How many times have you told yourself that you're fine when all you are really feeling is anger or sadness or nerves? Headspace can help you here by providing you an everyday dose of mindfulness in your real life. Now, one thing that people don't necessarily know about Headspace is that in addition to the guided meditations for which they're famous, it also offers music designed to help you concentrate. I am particularly partial to their lo-fi times mix, which helps me block out distractions when I really need to go deep. So however you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash questions, and you will get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available, so go to headspace.com slash questions today. Headspace.com slash questions. This podcast is sponsored by Ladder. If there's anything I've personally learned from the difficult events of the recent past, it is the fact that life is fragile and shouldn't be taken for granted. This is why you need life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a little bit each month to protect the ones you love? Now, there's no faster or easier way to find affordable term life insurance coverage than Ladder. All you need is a few minutes, a phone or laptop, and you can apply. Their smart algorithms will work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. No hidden fees. Cancel any time. 
And since life insurance costs more as you age, now is the right time to cross this task off your list. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladder.com slash deep. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash deep. Ladder.ladderlife.com slash deep. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. To do so, go to ladderlife.com slash deep. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash deep. Ladderlife.com slash deep. Uh, And with that, why don't we go answer some listener questions? So we'll start as always with some questions about deep work. We did a pretty long opening segment, so I am going to be pithy. Of course, I've said that before. We'll see if that actually works out. All right. Our first question comes from Clarissa. Clarissa says, I'm writing my dissertation and I am struggling. Uh, As a clinician by trait, I struggle with this phase of my PhD program. I'm somewhat traumatized by my advisor who criticized my ability to write two years ago. I always received excellent grades during coursework, but now in dissertation phase, she is beginning to compliment me, but I'm still insecure. I've hired an editor and a communication coach. I buy all the books on how to write a dissertation, but I still struggle with the writing process. Well, uh, Clarissa, what I'm going to do first is de-emphasize the writing aspect of you putting together your dissertation. This is a... It's a complaint I've often had about the rhetoric around dissertations that I used to voice a lot when I was early in my professor career because I had a background in productivity advice. I was asked to come to a lot of what are known as dissertation boot camps where you get together a bunch of grad students at a school who are working on their dissertations. and They all work together to try to get progress and they bring in speakers. And I spoke at a lot of these. And this was the point I often made. Stop making writing the only verb you use to describe working on a dissertation. Stop making the whole focus on, did I get my pages in? How often am I writing? How many hours of writing am I doing? Because when it comes to academic work of this type, 80% of the effort is thinking, figuring out what you want to say and making it something worth saying. Now, what this actually means depends on the field. I mean, if you're in a a more humanities-based field that you're doing philosophy or something, this really might be like the framework you're trying to put together. If this is more of a clinical research-based dissertation, which sounds like might be your case, like figuring out what to say is actually doing experiments, looking at what you discovered, coming up with better experiments, understanding the literature, figuring out the thing you want to say is 80% of the work and where almost all of the value comes from. 20% is just getting that down in a way that people can understand. The writing is a small part. I'm saying that, Clarissa, because I want you to feel better. You are not trying to get a you know, Pulitzer for a book of fiction you're writing, right? You are not trying to pitch the New Yorker to do you know, like some long-form piece where what's really going to matter is the, the craft and the poetry of your writing. No, what you're trying to do is take lots of deep thinking on something that's new and important and just express it in a way that people can understand. You need to be clear and you need to be grammatically correct. You need your writing to not get in the way of what you're really trying to do, which is deliver the idea. So clear writing, well-constructed, simple system sentences, good grammar, great. Everything else goes into actually figuring out what you want to say. So look, you hired an editor, that's fine. They can help you with the clarity. And that's all you need to worry about have them look at a couple chapters and they can, you know, Hey, you're using word repetition and be careful with your commas. Great. They'll help you with that. Uh, your writing will be clear. That problem is solved. And I don't want you to worry about that anymore. Again, you're not Joan Didion. You're not thinking, can I create poetry with my sentence rhythm? So don't worry so much about the writing. On the other hand, be very systematic when you think about what do I want to write about? Uh, experiments, reading the literature, working over what you want to say, checking that with people. Does this make sense? Do you buy this argument? Let me just give you this argument in words. Just you buy this argument, workshopping your ideas. Be much more relentless on thinking about what you're going to say. And once that's right, again, the writing when it comes to dissertation is just, can I get this information from my head to your head without roadblocks along the way? And Clarissa, I think you already can do that. 
and the editor will give you a little bit of extra confidence, but you're there with that. All right, let's move on to a question from Kavindra, who says, Cal, I have been implementing ideas from digital minimalism and a world without email, and I have found that my workday has so much extra time in it. Aside, everyone finds this when they actually begin being much more intentional about their time allocation, when they become much more intentional about the processes by which they collaborate, they realize that I only need this much hours to get my work done. It's a little bit of a secret. All right, going back to the question, um, I only need less than three-fourths of my work hours to be completely on top of my duties. Now that I have this time, I am realizing that there is much in my not work buckets that I can tackle. However, I do not want to mix non-work things with being at the office for my own mental clarity. I also don't want to look like a slacker. Uh, do you have examples of how people handle this in between time? Uh, so Kavindra, my, my standard suggestion here is that you should take a phantom part-time job. So this is my terminology for the very common occurrence among my listeners and readers where they get very intentional about their time, realize that end processes, time and processes, realize they have a lot of extra time in their day. They can stay on top of their job with a lot of extra times, which again is not surprising because most people are terrible at the mechanics of what they do for a living. So when you're not terrible, you realize you don't need as much time. And what I recommend is this idea of you really treat it like I have a part-time job and that's what I do in that extra one-fourth, in your case, one-fourth of my time this free. And you schedule your work for this phantom part-time job just like you're scheduling your work for your main job. And it happens during the workday. And you can decide if you want to, let's say, end your workday implicitly at three and then switch to your phantom part-time job or interleave your phantom part-time job during the day. Or like a lot of people will do their phantom part-time job first thing in the morning, then switch over to their other job because there's lots of meetings and stuff that happen more in the afternoon, the morning, however you want to do it. But you really treat it systematically like I have two jobs. You called the second one a phantom part-time job because you don't make it visible and you don't talk about it. Now, what do you do with your phantom part-time job? You have three options. One, you use it to move to the next level or open up new opportunities in your existing work. So you could be dedicating this time to, let's say, cultivating a new rare and valuable skill that's going to give you a lot more options or control or autonomy once you do it. Uh, two, it could be a side hustle. I am start, I want to write a novel. I'm starting a business on the side. I'm, I'm starting a podcast, whatever it is. So you're working on a side hustle that may just be for interest, or it may be that you want it to eventually generate enough income that you can renegotiate your main work situation to be maybe part-time itself. Or three, your phantom part-time job is a completely non-professional personal interest. I want to master, you know, coffee appreciation. I want to master a genre of fiction or whatever. Just a something high-quality leisure that you really want to invest in and, and, and get better at. The key thing here about the phantom part-time job is that it's focused. You are putting this time towards one thing repeatedly and carefully planning when it happens. That is going to get you away from this weird scattered feeling of just I'm slacking or doing lots of hobbies and work and or getting lost in rabbit holes on the internet. So I love the focus of the phantom part-time job. Choose one thing. I am going to do this thing over the next six months during my work hours in the one-fourth of the work hours I have free. When you're that consistent and focused, you can do really cool things with that time. All right, moving on. We have a question here from Lisa. Lisa asks, how can I take regular eye breaks for eye strain in a way that accommodates deep work? Well, Lisa, I want you to do more productive meditation, make this a bigger part of your habit. That is in almost any circumstance where thinking has to be done. All right, I'm, I'm putting together this strategy memo. What is the outline I want to use? I've received an email from a client or my boss, and it's going to be pretty tricky. Like, how do I answer this right? I got to really think this through. Like, what do I want to propose here? Uh, I have computer code I need to write, but I, I really don't know 
you know, what type of object do I need here? What's the right algorithmic approach? Whatever it is, whenever you come across, which should be if you're non-entry level on a regular basis, some contemplation that has to be done, do that on foot away from a computer screen. This is what I call productive meditation, working on a professional problem in your head while walking. This will be hard at first, but you'll get better at it with practice. And bring a notebook with you. Let me walk, take notes, walk, take notes. You're away from a computer. Notebooks do not cause eye strain. And then you come back once you've thought it through and are essentially transcribing that thinking back into your computer world. So if you do most of your non-trivial contemplation on foot, your head, walking, and notebook, this will automatically induce a, a regular rhythm of breaks from your computer screen that really should uh, handle the eye strain, but also, I think, make you more effective at your work. All right, we have a question from Sophie. Sophie asks, how do you manage long research projects while reducing anxiety? And Sophie has some elaboration. Uh, she says, I'm a PhD researcher in economics. From the start of a research project to publishing the paper usually takes three to four years. Wow. Um, how do I manage this type of long and draggy research project, uh, perhaps intertwined with other concurrent projects? All right. Well, that's long. Three to four years is quite long. Um, I'm assuming at that duration, what happens is is three to four years of work and then a bunch of papers you produce at the end of it. If not, make that the case. I don't know economics well, but I do remember Adam Grant explained this to me at some point. I was talking to the author, Adam Grant, who's also a, a professor at Wharton. And he talked about this, that in, in their work, which is very data analysis oriented, he's very economics oriented, even though he's a business professor. There's a long period of trying to get access to data sets that are good. And then once you have those data sets and you've really learned them, you pluck a lot of fruit from them. Paper, 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 paper. So that might help, by the way. You might amortize here. Uh, when you're doing these long projects, think about getting lots of papers out of the project. The other things I'll suggest, this was sort of an, a, an approach I've seen a lot in academia, uh, the two plus one rule. So have two big projects you're working on at one time, but in different stages. So you have a project that's really in the hardcore, we're analyzing the data, we're starting to write stage. Have another one that's in the very early stage. I'm negotiating with the French Census Bureau to try to get the data I'm going to need to do my big Thomas Piketty style, you know, economic growth analysis or something. So different stages. So the early stage project where requires sporadic attention and you can, you can put it on hold for a couple of weeks at a time. It's okay. You feel better about that because your second project is much closer to completion. And once that's done, your first project gets closer to completion. You can add in another early stage. So that's the two of the two plus one rule. The plus one is do something small that ships at least once every four to six months. So you feel like there's some progress happening. So, Hey, every semester I'm going to write, I'm going to publish a book review. I'm going to do a short paper. I'm going to go back to this data set. I really analyzed and wrote some epic papers about, let me take a month and put half of my research time onto extracting an additional cool little insight. That's going to be a short note or a conference talk or something like that. So that there's some wheel of public production that spins at a faster rate. So two plus one is a good rule for these type of research fields. All right, let's do one more question about deep work. This one, appropriately enough, comes from Deep Academic. I think if your parents named you that, it would be, you know, would be a shame if you became like a YouTube influencer. So I guess you didn't have any options about what your job was going to be once your parents named you Deep Academic. Here's the question. How do you handle paper rejection as an academic? How do you help your students get over it? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I struggle with it. Non-academics don't realize this. They don't realize how incredibly competitive academia is, especially sort of tenure-track R1 research institutions. There's these venues in which you can publish your papers that are very stratified, and it is incredibly hard to get your papers published in the good venues. It's very competitive. Most things get rejected, so you're constantly in this competition. I think the public sometimes has this view of academia where A – they call it teaching, which, uh, again, 
research oriented academics, it is a source of frustration that their job is described as uh, teaching. It's it's like if you're a, a professional basketball player and people were like, oh yeah, you uh, you you're a you do leg pressing. You're like, well, yeah, I do leg pressing in the gym as part of my training for being a really good basketball player, which is incredibly competitive and hard. The hardest thing in academia is trying to publish in these competitive venues. It's intellectual warfare, the very smartest people in the world fighting for a small number of slots, 10 to 15% of what is submitted is going to get accepted. It's very difficult. Uh, so you get a lot of rejections and it's, it's, um, it's competitive and it's difficult. I struggle with this. I, I've gone through different phases in my career. So when I was a graduate student, my pace of publication would be much less. I'd maybe one or two papers a year when I first got going. And, and it would hit me hard when a paper would get rejected because it's all I had worked on for a few months. And um, I, I have notes in my moleskins I can go find of me reacting to rejections. I took them hard. But then as I hit my stride as a, a junior faculty member, I, the wheel started to click and, and uh, I published a lot. And I really got a lot of stuff accepted. So there's a nice golden period where I published a ton of papers, got tenure early, got a distinguished professorship. Like things were really rolling well. I was publishing four or five papers um, a month. Uh, and then I, more recently, I've talked about this on the show, the pandemic knocked me back to the world of not pu- uh, not submitting as much, more re- much, way more rejections for the small number of things I was submitting. So I'm back into that world of rejection. Uh, and, and and briefly, what happened there for people who are non-academics, again, because it's so competitive, there is an incredibly high quality threshold. And so what happened to me during the pandemic is two things happened. One, I got knocked out of my collaboration cycles because I have collaborators around the world and we meet in person twice a year. And it is, they're top-notch collaborators. I've known most of them since I was you know, 22 years old at MIT. And they're all over the world, but we meet twice a year. Usually there's a time uh, in the summer um, for wherever there's a conference we all go to. And um, one of my close collaborators, longtime collaborators comes back to DC every summer as families here. And, and we bring in other collaborators and we all get together. And that's where like most of the ideas were generated that we then write papers on. Turns out if you don't have those meetings as happened during the pandemic, you don't have the good ideas to work on. Um, and two, I just didn't have the time. I just had, it was uh the typical impacts a lot of people had, especially people with kids with the pandemic, I didn't have as much time to spend on research. So I, I went to about 50% effort. The issue is in competitive academia, 50% effort doesn't mean, oh, you publish 50% less papers. It means any paper you write, the quality falls just enough that they're all below the acceptance threshold. And, and, and so I did that for a year, basically didn't publish anything. And then I realized like, oh, I should probably just put all of my energy into less papers. And, and I, you know, last year published like a very nice paper where I, I put my energy just, if I can't have as much time to spend on this, let me put all the time into one paper because I can't fall below it. But anyways, I've been really struggling with it. I, it's the lowest publication year last year. It was the lowest publication year I've ever had as a professional academic because of the pandemic. I still struggle with it, the academic. I think it's hard. The best thing you can do is uh, tune up your process. So after some hard rejections, tune up the process. What's missing here? What do I need to do? What would I need to do to not get rejected as often? Do I need better collaboration, more work, more whatever it is? Like figure out like how do I tune up my process? And by the way, you can decide I don't want to do that. I don't have time to do that. That's not where I am in my career, but be clear about it. And then two, do the real work. I mean, so... uh, there's no shortcuts around it. It's, you, you probably just have to do the stuff that's hard. Read the papers, understand what's going on, push your ideas farther than you think they need to be pushed. I mean, uh, do the work that's required, tune up your process. It's the, it's the best you can do. And, and then keep in mind, there's some stochasticity too. There is going to be some luck and that, that should, that should uh, even itself out. But anyways, I'm with you. I came off a five-year period of hotshot publishing down to nothing. And now I'm, I'm, crawling back out of that but carefully because I don't know that I want to go back to hotshot computer science publishing. There's so much other interesting stuff happening in the world now, especially my involvement in digital ethics and some of the public-facing writing I'm doing. So I'm rebuilding my life from scratch academically um, that will have more publications than I just had, but maybe not as much as I used to. It's hard. I feel your pain. Tune process, do real work, recognize there's luck, 
and otherwise try not to obsess too much about it because man, paper rejections is tough. All right. That's all the time we have for questions on deep work. Why don't we try to do a few questions now about the deep life? Moving on with questions about the deep life. Our first one comes from loves deep work. Good name. Uh, This question is, what are your thoughts on fasting and deep work? Well, I will say uh, I do this accidentally quite a bit, as my wife will tell you and complain about. Sometimes when I'm really locked in on a deadline, I will just work all day and not eat. And I'll be honest, it doesn't seem to affect my work, though. It does make me a real annoying person to be around afterwards. That's why she does not like that. Uh, My producer, Jesse, though, knows more about fasting. Jesse, do I have this right? You don't eat what lunch or you don't eat breakfast. What you, you have some fasting thing going on. You probably know more about this. I eat basically just dinner every day, but I started, I discovered it through Tim Ferriss's podcast when he was interviewing Terry Cruz. Terry, I saw a picture of him. He looked jacked anyway. And he's like, yeah, Ferris asked him if he could do one thing. You know, he's 50 something at the time. What would he do? He goes out of fasted earlier. And I was like, immediately started doing that but i started an eight eight hour period i did that for like a year then i just narrowed it even more so now i just eat dinner so what do you get out of that what 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 was terry cruz pitching if you do it you get cut oh interesting like because you're it all comes down to calories in and calories out so i mean i wanted to get more cut and i work out a lot anyway and it was amazing. It was like, I immediately, well, not immediately, but over time, like I got a lot more cut, more cut than I've ever been. And I've been doing this now for like four or five years. So by the way, those are all phrases you would never hear at a computer science faculty meeting. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get more cut. I mean, I'm working out a lot anyways. <laughs> these are all, these are all <laughs> phrases you wouldn't hear. Um, but what about your concentration ability? Do you get hungry? Do you get, do you find that you're not able to think as clearly? Do you get the opposite when it comes to this question about deep work? What do you think the impact would be? I think you actually think more clearly. Are you, you hungry? Do you get hungry? Yeah, I definitely get hungry, but every day is kind of like a, a battle. So like every day you kind of just get through it and then eventually you get to the evening and you can eat and it's, you know, and the other thing about it too is you can't really gorge at night either. You still got to eat healthy if you, especially as you get older and stuff. So that's one thing I realized. And but the healthy food, just the nature of that food, also probably just regulates what you can eat, right? Because if you're eating vegetables or whatever, there's only so much you can eat. Whereas if it was like a bag of tortilla chips, you could probably crush three of those. Yeah, you can't eat any processed foods for the most part unless you're cheating. I, I was just reading, I just revisited Tom Brady's TB12 like book where he has like a nutrition um, chapter in there. And it's it's simple stuff. He doesn't do anything that crazy. He just eats healthy foods. And you you have to do that most of the time. But in terms of thinking and doing work, it, I, I think it really helps. And plus it doesn't, it, it limits the cognitive strain of having to buy a lot of stuff and think about getting food all the time and stuff like that. All right. So it sounds like maybe if this listener wants to experiment, experiment, start with the eight hour, just skip breakfast or something. Yeah. That, I've, yeah. I've had a lot of buddies cause I've been doing it for a while and some of them do like eight and eight and a half hours, which I did for a year. And then I, I was like, I think I can crank this up even more because sometimes, you know, in the evenings and stuff, I'll, you know, I want to still be able to like have beer and stuff every once in a while. So like I wanted to have more flexibility. So then I was just like, let me experiment with narrowing the number. And then it just became basically like an hour and a half to two hour, pretty narrow window. All right. So I think we now have a bestseller here. Here's the diet only beer (laughs) for eight hours. And then you go to food for the, the four hours that, that remains. The one thing I have heard, I've tried this before informally. I might try this more. I do know a couple buddies who swear by they do uh, like Laird Hamilton's coffee creamer or something like this, like a coconut oil, like a healthy fat in their coffee for breakfast and no other food. And they swear by uh, that really giving them mental clarity, you know? So it's like the caffeine. I guess there's a couple things that goes on. 
one, the, the, the fats they use in these sort of high fat creamers, um, slows down potentially the spread of the caffeine. So it spreads it out. And I don't know if there's a ketone situation or just an energy situation, but I, I do know people who swear by that, that they, um, do one of these, I don't know you call them clean fat coffee creamers. And the one I've tried is Laird Hamilton's. Yeah, I've tried that too. I, I like it. Yeah. Uh, most of the time I try to drink my coffee black, but three times a week I give myself the flexibility to have some cream. Yeah. So that's something you could try. Um, maybe the, what's his name? Dave Asprey has something too. The bulletproof guy. They have some other, but it's all the same thing. It's like yeah. coconut fat style MCT oil. Um, you know, you give that a try and then just wait till at least lunch. Um, the only thing I know for sure is true is that high carb or processed food crashes your thinking. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the food marketing industry is like does one of the best marketing campaigns of all time, convincing us that we need to eat. Go to any grocery store and you can see aisles and aisles of stuff that you should just avoid. Yeah. So I mean, if you're if you're eating, you know, a burger and fries for lunch, you're not you're not deep thinking that afternoon. All right, we'll go on to uh, next question here. This is from Cal Fan. All right, so this must be someone who. Uh, went to school in California. How do you maintain a healthy body posture while being at a computer throughout the day? Um, don't be at a computer all throughout the day. It's much easier than, you know, having to buy one of those Twitch streamer style jet engine, jet fighter pilot gamer chairs to try to get your posture just right. Uh, just don't be at your computer all day. In response to an earlier question in this episode, I suggested anytime you have actual non-trivial contemplative thinking to do do it on foot just have that rule and you're gonna do better thinking but you're also gonna be up a lot more so that's the key make make the posture i mean have good posture but make it somewhat irrelevant because you're not at your chair long enough at a stretch that non-perfect posture is going to cause a problem all right a question here from monkey mind hi cal what do you suggest to people who pick up habits and suggestions you give but not stick to them for more than a few days. Um, I tell them they're losers. I tell them they need to give up and just watch TikTok videos. Um, no, this is, here's the thing. You're probably, you're probably bringing it on too much at a time. It's probably unrealistic and your mind is probably not on board with all the different things you're doing. So if you have all these big plans, there's a deeper part of your mind. The planned evaluation center is probably saying, I don't know, monkey mind, this stuff is not all going to work. This is too much and we're not going to do it, right? So you, you kind of overloaded that planning. So what I usually tell people is the foundation, the foundation to any of these type of professional style habits is daily metric tracking. That's the one thing you have to do. It takes seven seconds at the end of each day or you can do it each morning and you have some metrics you track and you always do it. That's the thing you have to commit to. It's why my time block planner has this metric planning section on every daily page is you do that. Now, these metrics then can point towards the habits you're trying to do through the day and you keep track of it with the metrics. Did I time block plan? You know, check. Did I do my whatever, my morning deep work session? Check. Did I do my exercise you know, section? Check. How many chapters did I read? Whatever you're tracking. And you track it there. The key thing is you track it even if it's zero, even if it's no. And even if it's again and again, no, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. That's fine. But you're tracking. Here's what actually happened. That's the foundation for any consistent habit formation when it comes to professional habits. Then you begin to experiment with, okay, what is the right first step collection of habits that my metric tracking, I eventually actually start positively marking those things down on a consistent basis. And you start small. Like all I want to do is a good morning planning session. And I'll give a check if I do that. Okay, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Um, all right. Now all I want to do is a time block plan my day. Let me check if I'm doing that. So then you slowly start seeing what works and what doesn't. And if you try something and you're, you have the evidence in your metric track, you're not doing it, you pull it back. Let me try something else. And you slowly build up these habits, but you have to have that foundation of I'm, I'm, keeping tabs and a record every day of what I did or didn't do. Your mind knows it's being tracked. It's embarrassed if if you blow things off that you could do. That is the foundation. So do the metric tracking, even if you're embarrassed by what you're tracking, and then slowly and experimentally add things into your life. 
Once something sticks, move on to something else. Give this a year of work and you'll come out on the other side with a pretty good set of carefully tested habits that work really well for you and your situation that you consistently follow. But it takes work and you can't do that work without tracking metrics. I will do one more question here. This one's from Alexander who asks, how does a digital minimalist find interesting books to read? Well, my advice here is don't overthink it. Books are interesting just by definition. It's someone who has thought a lot about something, be it a fictional world or an idea or a period of history or event, and they have put a lot of effort into getting their thoughts on the paper. Just read. Don't overthink what you read. You're more likely to do more reading if you don't care so much about what it is exactly that you're reading. Go back and listen, like at the beginning of this episode or from last month or the month before, the segments I do on the books I read each month, and you will see it is all over the place. I'm not trying to impress anyone. I'm not trying to rigorously expand my knowledge of some niche area. I just wander all over the place. I've been obsessed recently with Hollywood figures, why not? Let's read a bunch of books about that. I'll read random fiction. I'll throw in straight up self-help, but then I'll mix that in with essay collections and journalistic nonfiction. I don't care. I grab stuff. I finish like I need a new book. I grab stuff. I don't overthink it. You shouldn't overthink it either. Reading is like calisthenics for your ability to understand and think about the world. Don't sweat exactly what grip you're using on this metaphorical pull-up bar. Just get on that bar most days and do some exercising. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Remember, if you like what you hear on this podcast, you will like what you read on my longstanding email newsletter. You can subscribe at calnewport.com. We'll be back on Thursday with a listener calls mini episode. And until then, as always, stay deep. Stay deep.